You are listening to us, Unscripted Stories, brought to you by Northwestern University's Multicultural Student Affairs. We are recording at the traditional homelands of the people of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Adawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk Nations. This week, we are featuring part two of our conversation with Charla Wilson, an archivist for the Black experience at the university. How do you feel that archival work can continue to, um, you know, not just, you know, hold these stories or record them, but, you know, continue to build out, um, you know, stories even like going into the future or, you know, assist these groups and really um, holding on to, you know, like their history and then working with it to like build and, you know, make themselves more heard? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um... Yeah, so my colleagues and I in the university archives um, have been grappling with this too. How do we how do we work with current student groups to uh, make sure that you know these these records um, that they're currently creating are preserved for the future? Because um, you know because there is such a high turnover, um, for example, with student groups and student leadership. Sometimes you know we'll hear students say oh, you know, I, I'm storing some of our, our group's materials in my dorm room or, you know, um, you know, or they sometimes they come into their organizations and or into their leadership positions and they don't have access to records from, from previous years. And so there are gaps in, in their, um, their records and essentially gaps in their history because those are the, um, those materials that they create. Um, it's, it's part of the history that gets passed down. Um, each year. And so um, my colleagues and I in the archives got together and we tried to brainstorm some ways that we could support student organizations um, sort of address that that issue. And so we started a pilot project this year um, called Make Your Mark. And so we invite um, student leaders to um, partner with us to uh, archive their student records. And so we, we have a training um, that they can go through, where they can learn just the basic concepts of archiving their records. They can learn what to keep, perhaps what not to keep, how to have these conversations with their their members about, um, you know, just some of like the issues of copyright restrictions they may want to consider. Um, and the, the key point here is that, you know, we'll have students um, continually go through that training process and um, work with us so that they can deposit that material with the archives so that there is a, um, a dedicated space for their records so that they will continually have access to their records and essentially their historical documents. Um, so that a hundred years from now, we won't have someone say, oh goodness, we, um, we don't have anything on you know, our organization that was established a hundred years ago. And, you know, how do, how do we learn more about it? And so we want to make sure that we can sort of um, prevent something like that from occurring by partnering with them now. So, so that, that is a way of, of ensuring that this history is, um, is preserved long term. Um, and so the archives, and it, it, this is a program that's continuing to go on. So if there are any student leaders who are interested in that, um, please do contact us. We'd be happy to talk to you. Um, but yeah, yeah, we just, um, yeah, I mean, this history is really important, and um, there's so much that can be lost if, you know, if we don't um, preserve it now, um, and, you know, 
regret later. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the ways. Wow, no, that's really exciting and really amazing that you all are giving tools directly to these organizations to help them preserve their own history. I think that's really incredible. I will just say, yeah, and it's really, it's a matter of us working with students. Um, you know, we want to make sure that they, um, you know, are saving documents that tell the history, um, you know, that best represents them. And so it, it's, we truly see it as a partnership with them. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Is there a um, specific story that you've archived uh, that you would mind telling that you find to be particular, particularly interesting um, that you would be willing to tell us here or exciting or really just something that's spoken to you in your work? Ooh, um, well, one of the topics I'm interested in continuing to learn more about is that of housing discrimination at Northwestern and paired with student activism around housing equity on campus and in Evanston. Um, just to give a little bit of background, uh, Northwestern didn't have an official written policy of segregation on campus um, or in admissions, but there were some barriers um, when it came to providing on-campus housing to African-American students. And um, there's a, a story of one particular student by the name of Isabella Ellis. Um, and I bring her up because she's one of the earliest ones that we have documented um, because her, her story made the news. And so, so Ellis enrolled at Northwestern in 1902, and she arrived from San Antonio, Texas. And um, so, I mean, that's, that's quite the journey <laughs> from Texas to Evanston. And so she had to, um, she thought she would be able to live on campus. Um, and so she expected to live in Chapin Hall and she was assigned a roommate and her roommate was white. And when she found out that Ellis was black, she refused to live with her and she was able to get reassigned to a different room and roommate. Um, so you wanna keep in mind, like there are very few black students at Northwestern at this time. Um, I don't have the exact number, but my estimate is probably fewer than five um, out of this, the total student body. And um, so, so those, those are some challenges. And so the, the Women's Educational Aid Association was an organization that oversaw Chapin Hall at that time. And what they did was allow Ellis to live alone in a double, um, even though housing that year was limited and they required students to have roommates. Um, but they said that because there weren't other students willing to live with her, she could live in that double. So that's what she did. And they told her that by the end of the school year, she would need to identify a roommate for the following academic year. And um, so the controversy, the controversy that came out of this was that there were 12 white occupants of that dorm that threatened to withdraw from the university if it meant that they would have to live with Isabella Ellis. So because it became such an issue that the Women's Educational Aid Association um, had a meeting about this situation, and they ultimately voted to deny Ellis her housing request. And we actually have, in the archives, we have the minutes that, that show that this is what they, they agreed to. And so um, Ellis was told that she had to have find other housing arrangements, um, and she wasn't able to do that. At least that's, that's what I, I assume. Um, so she had to withdraw from the university, and this story received national attention, particularly in the black press. 
Um, and there was an outcry, I will say there was an outcry from Northwestern faculty, some Northwestern faculty and some members of the, the Women's Educational Aid Association who objected to that ruling. But the, the damage of that was that the decision remained and it set a precedent for the future of housing for black students at Northwestern. So most black students, um, you'll hear, and I oftentimes I, I even hear um, you know, alumni who'll reach out and they'll say, I had a relative who who told me the story that you know, she, he or she wasn't allowed to live on campus because Northwestern didn't allow it. And um, so that was quite typical. Black students at the time had to either commute from home. Um, sometimes they lived with families in the Evanston area, um, or sometimes they would um, stay at the Emerson Street YMCA, which was a segregated Y for African-American males in Evanston. Um, there was the option of renting apartments in Evanston, but that was challenging too because Evanston had some of the um, landlords, they were practicing restrictive housing covenants. Um, so, so yeah, so these were some of the, the, the housing challenges, but the other element to the housing story is that it was through student activism and resistance to this over time that this unofficial policy of housing discrimination was questioned and ultimately dismantled. Um, and it's a long, complicated story, and there's some other um, other examples of, um, of of experiences that alumni um, and or students at that time had. Uh, but I'll just highlight one of the ways Black students were outspoken on this issue. Um, and in light of Evanston's recent vote in favor of reparations, um, I'll share the story about Joseph Akpaku um, because you know it, it sort of deals with that Evanston housing issue. So so Akpaku was um, an international student from Nigeria. And he was recruited to Northwestern through the um, African Scholarship Program of American Universities. And he enrolled at Northwestern in 1962. And by that time, um, black students could live on any, they could live in any dorm on campus, but he tried to rent an apartment in Evanston. Um, but he found his experience was that when he would reach out to landlords, they would refuse to rent to him because he was black. and Akpaku, what's really remarkable about him is that he described this experience of trying to rent an apartment in Evanston in detail in the Daily Northwestern. And um, there was an article where he talked about calling over 100 properties and just not getting an offer to rent a space. Um, but he ultimately found housing 10 blocks from campus in what at that time was referred to as the Negro District in Evanston. Um, and so you might imagine this had to be an incredibly frustrating um, experience, but Akpaku wanted to make a difference um, based on what he was going through. And so he ran for ASG vice president, um, I believe it was in 65, and he ran on a 14-point plan, which included advocating for open housing in Evanston. And so he won that election and became the first Black vice president elected to ASG. And one of the measures that he advocated for while he was in that position was um, he was able to get the university to um, communicate to landlords in Evanston that they would be taken off the, the university's list of approved off-campus housing if they discriminated against any of their students. Um, but I mean, it's also important to note that there's a larger um, you know, a larger open housing movement in Evanston that, that's about to take place at this time and across the nation. Um, but it's a really interesting um, example of student activism around this issue. And um, yeah, and just, um, you know, looking at from, you know, Isabella Ellis to 
um, you know, to the to the present. I, I just think it's it's a really interesting uh, um, account of sort of like that change over time um, in response to that that housing issue. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I um, mm -hmm. I'm really glad that um, you know I had the opportunity to learn more about this, and hopefully some of our listeners also are learning more. So thank you so much. Um, sure. We like to ask all of our storytellers um, this final question. Why is it important for marginalized communities to tell their own stories? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I do think it's important for marginalized groups to tell their own stories um, because who can tell them better than the people who are experiencing it? Um, I mean, no one else could really tell it better. Um, and, I, and that's one of the things I, I really enjoy about oral history as a method for, for documenting um, student experiences at Northwestern is you can go directly to the source um, of the individuals who, who experienced, um, you know, that particular event that they're talking about. You get it firsthand and there's a sense of, um, you, you're really getting the truth. You're getting the true experience. I think it's so valuable, I think, long-term for other people who are learning about this history to, um, and I think there's something very powerful about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Charla, for being with us today. Um, this is the final episode of season two of Us, Unscripted Stories. We will be back this fall with more Unscripted Stories. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you for listening to Us, Unscripted Stories. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Support for this podcast is provided by Joe Scaletti, Emma Sullum, Saeed Rezko, Sydney Hastings, and Jeanette Rojas. With support from Alicia Solier, Isabel St. Arnold, Aaron Golding, and Linda Luck. Subscribe to hear more from Us.